Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello, listeners. This is Morgan. And Jesse. And we are coming at you live from the Ocean River headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, Dr. Moyer is not with us today, so Jesse and I are taking over the program, and we have a lot of cool things in store for you. Um, so firstly, we just wanted to sort of step back and introduce ourselves and give a little bit more context as to how we've arrived in the environmental world, um, why we're still here, what we do at ORI, things of that nature. Um, so yeah, so Jesse and I, yeah, a little, a little intro to us um, so you understand who is talking at your ear every Thursday afternoon. Um, so Jesse and I are both students at Tufts University in Medford, Mass., um, and we are going into our senior years. And we both are majoring in biology and environmental science. Yeah. Um, so we're both, um, yeah, we both have those two majors together. And then mine, uh, my environmental, I, this is Morgan, by the way. This is <laughs> and this is Jesse. Our voices might not be distinguishable, but I think they are. Um, yeah, so I'm environmental studies with a, um, a specialty in food systems, nutrition, and the environment. And um, I specialize in general environmental science, especially like ecosystems and how they interact with people. Right. Um, so Jess, can you tell us, I've, I've learned that you work with butterflies, and I'm wondering <laughs> what you did with that and how that connects to your environmental knowledge. Yes, so last summer, um, my summer job was a little more outdoors than this one. Um, basically, I worked within a Tufts lab um, that studied uh, ecosystems and how like butterflies and other general bugs interact and how climate change affects their phenology, which means timing and like uh, general, yeah. So basically, my job consisted of me being in the field every day with a butterfly net, catching butterflies that are specifically an endangered species. They're called the Baltimore checker spot. And we would mark them and take notes of where they are and release them. So we would actually be able to see the whole boot, like rise and crash pattern of the populations in both Maryland and um, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So yeah, big, big into bugs. Um, that was a great summer job. And what did you do last summer, Morgan? Um, last summer, I worked for the Somerville Homeless Coalition. Definitely an environmental job, but very different, um, less outdoorsy than your job. Um, the summer before that, I worked for um, a wildlife preserve, and I was out outdoors for the entire time, pulling forty upwards of 40 ticks off of myself every day after work. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely part of being an environmental science student is that the opportunities are they're there, but they're often outdoors and they're often sweaty and bug covered, which is which is great because usually I found that environmental students are usually um, you know like to spend time outdoors, um, and that's true of us. So, yeah. so yeah. So it means pulling off a couple ticks now and then. Yeah, here here and there. Um, <laughs> so, how did we end up at the Ocean River Institute? Is another question you might be wondering. Um, so, for that, we also will turn to Jessica. <laughs> So I'm not sure if most of you are aware, but in Massachusetts, we have this amazing program called the Clean Energy Council, Council um, where basically they fund, the state funds, unpaid internships in environmental and clean energy jobs to just kind of keep the brains of Massachusetts within the state. <laughs> um, and just to correct that, it's the Clean Energy Center. Center. <laughs> Not close, but no cigar. Um, <laughs> so as a biologist, you know, I was looking around for something a little bit not 
solar, not energy. So I found Ocean River Institute and I saw the cool work that we were doing about, you know, stopping nitrogen pollution and protecting our local waters. So, you know, I checked it out and I found this great position and talked to Rob and found out that there was a second position open. <laughs> um, at which point I received an email or a, a Facebook message from Jesse saying, Morgan, do you need a job this summer? I found something great. Um, and lo and behold, Jesse um, got me this position and she and I knew each other before from a program at Tufts called the EcoRep. Shout out EcoRep if you're listening. Um, and that's the program at Tufts where students are ambassadors for the Office of Sustainability. Um, and we do we run the compost at Tufts, which is um, a cool thing, very tangible way to help out, yeah. um, especially in the winter when it's steaming and you have to carry it to the bin. It's super fun when the melt dog melts. Yeah. <laughs> Great when, the bag, when the bag decomposes when you're walking, home composters will know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so that's how we knew each other. Um, and yeah, so Jesse, tell me, tell me one fun fact about you before we really get into the nitty gritty of this podcast. This has surprisingly come up a couple times during our time working at ORI, but uh, when I was like around seven years old, I got caught in a revolving door, and I still have a slight phobia of them now. She went through one the other day. She did great, I thought. Thank you. Thank you. And Morgan, so are there Um, any fun facts about you? uh, My token fun fact that I always use is that I speak fluent Pig Latin at about the same rate that I can speak regular English. Um, Can you uh, give us Yeah. What should I say? Um, why don't um, say... I can say, like, I work for the ORI or something. Yeah. I or Quay or Faye, they O-A-R-A-I. So that is that useless. Candy. Yeah, um, In my adult life, I hope it doesn't come up too much. <laughs> um, so, Morgan, what have you been doing for the last couple months? A um, couple months before this job. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, <laughs> so I just returned from my semester in, um, my semester abroad. I was in Madrid, Spain. Um, which was such a wonderful time. I got a lot of opportunities to practice my Spanish, and I worked at a sustainability organization there called La Casa Encendida, which is, like, it, it translates to, like, the house, the, like, lit house, the house <laughs> on fire, illuminated house. Um, but it's basically an organization that combines artists and, like, makers um, with fair trade practices. And I worked in the shop, which was a really good way to practice my Spanish, even though a lot of people spoke English there, which was a handicap that I use sometimes. That's super cool. Um, and, yeah, something that I noticed about that was super different and also just like from a sustainability perspective was that every person there shops for food just for like meals they already know that they're going to have like people buy a small amount of fruit and then eat it all that night like because the homes are way smaller especially in the city of Madrid um, the fridges are really small and there's just so much less food waste because it's like not like you just go to Costco and buy like a huge bin of something and then maybe eat some of it let some of it go bad like I see in the states a lot including in my own house and at home and stuff um, which you know we're all trying to cut back on but um, it was yeah so that was really inspiring to me that people sort of are really conscious not necessarily from an environmental perspective but it ends up being way way less waste um, I think and it's financial. cheaper too yeah exactly yeah versus that. like my mom who shops for you know three weeks at a time and comes home 20 bags in tow shout out mom McIsaac for listening <laughs> Um, and Jess, where where are you returning from? I've noticed you have a, a sandal tan. <laughs> um, so I also went abroad, and it was kind of crazy program. We went in a full loop around the world, which was pretty cool. So we started in San Francisco for two weeks, and then we went to Vietnam, and then we went to Morocco, then we went to Bolivia. So the whole basis of the program is that we were studying the politics of climate change through the lens of food, water, and energy. So it was really interesting to compare the different systems we have in place in America with the different systems we have in place all across the world and how that affects, 
like food insecurity as well as energy security and community development as well as we focused a lot on international development and how, you know, these amazing environmental projects such as uh, the world's largest solar plant in Morocco actually displaces local communities and Basically, you know, I kind of learned that not every environmental issue is black and white and that there's a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different stakeholders that go into this kind of thing. Um, And we had a final research project where I basically wrote a long paper on how deforestation, preventing deforestation efforts from international communities can actually harm the local residents while still, like, mitigating climate change. So it was kind of interesting to explore that, um, explore that kind of contradiction as well as, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And speaking of contradictions, because we were studying climate change and because we flew around, I can't even, 30,000 miles or something, I think way more. Either way, uh, I calculated the amount of um, carbon emissions that we used on all these flights and it ended up equaling around the size of like a small apartment in terms of sea ice that's melted purely from my carbon footprint. So that's another kind of hypocritical contradictory thing is, you know, is it worth it to see the world that you are kind of destroying? So that's just another question that I have in the back of my mind and kind of revealed to me how being an environmentalist means beyond caring for the environment. Right. Um, and <clears throat> what Jesse is referencing is something we've talked about a lot in the office. Um, we're kind of referencing an article from the New York Times that came out on June 3rd in, in the travel section entitled, If Seeing the World Helps Ruin It, Should We Stay Home? Which poses the exact question Jesse's talking about, sort of, is it worth it to do environmental studies if it means causing actual tangible environmental harm if you have to go halfway across the world and back? Um, and it's a tricky question that we all grapple with working in the environmental world. Um, the statistic that was that was pointed out in that article is that 32 square feet of Arctic summer ice um, that cover that um, cover one passenger share of emissions from a 200 2,500 mile flight. So basically, a flight to New York to LA. Yeah, so not even that crazy. So one flight across the country uh, one time melts 32 square feet of Arctic sea summer ice. Which, granted, it does um, freeze back, but not in the same amount. Um, so yeah, so just like having a tangible statistic like that is pretty helpful when you're thinking about how you can measure, you know, which things are responsible, which things are worth it. Also something um, to keep in mind in terms of environmentally friendly travel is that you should always view um, the amount of time you stay somewhere as a proportion, like as a larger proportion to, um, if the trip is longer. So for example, if you're flying to Asia, like stay there longer because that's farther away as opposed to flying to Mexico or something. Um, that way, you know, it's it just the idea of minimizing the amount of times you're going back and forth somewhere farther. Um, yeah. So that's, that's that. Cool. Yeah. So that's another thing that we've been pondering, but going back to the, the food realm of things, um, Morgan, I would love to hear a little mm-hmm. bit about what you do on Tufts campus and around the local area. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, I think what you're talking about is food rescue. Um, yeah, so food rescue is something that's come about relatively recently. I would say in the last few decades, it's sort of a big movement. Um, and it's the idea of capturing or rescuing food from a supermarket or a restaurant or somewhere where it's going to get thrown out and bringing it to a place of need. So that could be a homeless shelter, a soup kitchen, a domestic violence crisis center, or a senior home, um, stuff like that. And it's a really cool thing. And at Tufts, we've had a program going for the past few decades as well. It's really it's an old program, but it's had a lot of changes. Um, and it has two factions, one of which captures food from the dining halls and makes it into packaged frozen meals. 
um, which are distributed by Food for Free um, in the greater Boston area, which is really cool. And then the part I'm more involved with is the van rescues, where we send seven drivers a week or more, depending on you know how much food there is, um, to local uh, supermarkets, including Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Be Fresh, um, in around the Cambridge, Medford, Somerville area, um, and they pick up tons and tons, literally tons and tons of food every season um, and drop them off with different um, places where people need food. And it's a really cool thing because it feels like it's matching a place of excess to the place of sort of need. Um, And again, with the environmental considerations, I mean, like reducing waste is really important. Um, When things go bad and get thrown out, they release methane and landfills. But at the same time, we're driving around. So sometimes you have to weigh the cost of, let's say, it's not a lot of food or it's a low value item. Does it make sense to send a van far away to get it? Um, So that's a consideration sort of akin to that Jesse was speaking about, um, about travel. Um, Another thing that's interesting about food rescue that I learned in a class at Tufts, a food systems class, is that Food rescue is a really good thing, but also in a, in a more perfect food system, we wouldn't need it because basically what it does is provide free insurance or, yeah, insurance for um, supermarkets like Whole Foods or like other ones um, that so they have a sort of backup on the food that they buy so they can buy excess and then if they sell it, that's great. And if not, they get tax write-offs for donating it. Um, so it, it almost is a problem in that it perpetuates a problem in the food system, but at the same time, there's always going to be some amount of excess in retail. So it's really good that we're able to help people, help feed people with that excess. Um, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting thing and definitely something that I'm proud to work with. And it's it's on the uptick, which is awesome. I, yesterday, Jesse and I were tabling for ORI and we spoke with a woman um, from Foodlink in Arlington, Mass, and they do a, a similar thing. They run a ton of food rescues all year round. Um, and it's great. People are people are super grateful. And oftentimes it's really fancy food that's not even touched, which is like kind of also a weird you thing. Some examples? Yeah. One time I got um I had did a rescue that was like it was from Whole Foods in Cambridge, I think. And it was a ton of really fancy mushrooms. And I, I met a woman at a at a place um who was on the receiving end of it and she was so excited. She was like, These are the best mushrooms. I can't believe we oh got my these. Gosh. Um so stuff like that is funny also. Um but yeah, it's definitely it's a really it's a worthwhile cause and yeah, it's a it's amazing. Yeah. Wow, you are doing great work in our local community. Thank so you. I feel like it's easy to, I don't know, pose these kind of problems with the environmental work that we're doing because yeah. it's never, you know, nothing ever exists in a vacuum. Um, and if people listening are looking for volunteer opportunities, Food Link Arlington is always looking for volunteers, as is Project Soup from the Somerville Homeless Coalition. Um, there are a bunch of other organizations that deal with food rescue also, Food for Free, um, I'm trying to think. Love and Spoonfuls also is another one out of the Boston area. So it's definitely something you can volunteer a few hours of your time with. You don't need any money, any supplies. All you need usually is the ability to drive a vehicle that will be provided to you. And it's a really great way to, to physically give back. So, Yeah, that's, that's great, Morgan. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a really cool program, and she's kind of spearheading it right now. So I just wanted to give her a little shout-out for the great work that she's been doing. So... Um, yeah, I think we might go to a commercial break. Something soon. Yeah, <laughs> um, but in the meantime, we can continue talking about sustainable eating a little bit. Um, so something that's been on our minds, Jesse and I, because we're both kind of culinarians, is talking about um, what foods we should be eating, especially because we work in an environmental organization. So to go home and cook something from hundreds of miles away feels kind of weird and wrong. Um, so we've been trying to shop locally, although sometimes it's expensive, so it can be cost prohibitive to some people. 
Um, but we've actually been spending a good amount of time at farmers markets, um, which we'll get into a little bit in our next segment um, through the ORI. And yeah, so something that um, Rob, who again couldn't be here today, but is you know is still our our leader. Um, something he mentions is that with fish, yeah, our captain, um, with fish and aquatic things in particular, um, you can almost always go by the price. Um, and conveniently, the lower the price, the more abundant the fish is. And so it's actually more responsible to eat a cheaper fish because it means that, you know, the, the price is down, which means there's high supply and you're not eating an endangered fish. Like, you should ask yourself typically if you're eating something really expensive and, and, and rare that, you know, you're probably eating something that there isn't a lot of and probably don't. So it's good for the wallets, good for the seas, you know. Um, yeah. Other stuff is stuff that, like, you've seen growing in your area. So blueberries grow around where I live. Um, so I'm, I know that at this time of year, it makes sense for me to be eating them. And if you check the package, even on things like Driscoll's and, like, bigger brands, it'll often say where it's from. So product of the U.S., product of Canada. So although you can't know exactly how far it's coming from, it's, it's helpful. Um, yeah, so that's that. Um, yeah, and I know Jessie has been growing some of her own herbs, so that's coming back on trips to the supermarket and making her ice cubes a lot more flavorful. Yes, I've been experimenting with ice cubes, and I have a whole single cherry tomato that is almost ready to be picked. So, yeah. so you know, it's the little things. If you have time, it's always, it's yeah. always fun to try to You can buy some stuff. herbs from your local local farmer's market, or you can... Um, you can even plant your own from garden scraps, which I've been doing, and it's been it's been great, very fun. So yeah, so we highly to, recommend. Yeah. yeah, and we'd love to hear back from you, our audience, if you have any um, suggestions about things to grow, think, ways to do so in a in a cost effective way, um, and any other ways you're reducing waste in the kitchen or in your home, because that's important, and we want to talk about it. So, um, and we will be back in a couple minutes to talk about our work that we've done so far at ORI. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, so again, Rob's interns, Jesse and Morgan, filling in for Rob uh, this this podcast. So I just wanted, we talked a little bit about ourselves and kind of how we got in here and got into environmentalism generally. And I just kind of wanted to touch upon what we've been doing here at ORI, because I think we've been doing some really cool work. So right now, ORI, as you may know, has been running this pledge to basically eliminate nitrogen pollution from lawns by getting people pledging to ban the use of quick-release fertilizer, either personally or uh, municipality-wide. So, yeah, we've been really pushing out this pledge and also meeting with conservation commissioners to kind of, you know, see if this is something tangible. Um, So, Morgan, would you like to tell us a little bit more about how we kind of how how those go and totally. how feasible it is politically for this this ban to occur. Totally, Jess. Um, so, firstly, I just want to clarify. I think we've mentioned it on past podcasts, but just for current listeners, sort of what it is that we're doing in terms of quick versus slow release. What all of these um, industry ish jargon what it, what it means. Um, so basically, quick-release fertilizer refers to a, a very highly soluble nitrogen fertilizer that people put on lawns. It's the common one, like Scott's and like other brands that people buy it at the hardware store, um, and people are told to apply it five times a year, which is way too much. Um, most of the nitrogen ends up running off of your lawns. It doesn't really do anything helpful, um, and it causes a ton of water pollution, which can cause marine life or marine ecosystem disruption. Um, so it's a big problem ecologically. Also, it wastes a lot of money. Um, and if you just think about it logically, if you're putting too much of a chemical on your lawn, it's going to run off and it's going to end up somewhere it shouldn't. Um, and the thing about nitrogen is that it feeds grass, but it also feeds algae, which Jesse knows a lot about. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so my kind of specialty has been about... Um, uh, algal blooms and how because water insoluble nitrogen just immediately enters our waterways that's kind of the limiting ingredient for algal blooms and as I was doing more research I just found you know horror stories of pets swimming in it and becoming sick and mm-hmm. how just even with my own eyes I've seen how scummy and green and like gross it gets basically 
But something I didn't realize, which I think I talked about on one of our most recent podcasts, mm-hmm. was that algal blooms actually contribute to climate change. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so when the algal, algal blooms die, they are decomposed and release a bunch of methane. So that's another, not, not only are they disrupting ecosystems, but they're also contributing to climate change. Right, um, um, absolutely. And so then the alternative that we at Ocean River recommend um, is to use no fertilizer, basically. And if you really need to, to use something called slow release, um, which is a, a pellet that dissolves over the entire season. It only requires one application a year. Um, and the brand that we know is Osmocote, but I think more are coming onto the market right now. Um, this is not a paid advertisement. We just happen to, we happen to find that, um, and that's the slow release that we currently recommend. Um, that's subject to change as hopefully the industry is adapting to the fact that quick release is wasteful and it's not what people should be using on their lawns. Um, so, so yeah, so that is what the pledge is. So we're asking of people, number one, to reduce or completely get rid of their use of nitrogen fertilizer. Um, and if they have to, just one application of the slow-release pellets. Um, and with this switch, our boss, Dr. Rob Moyer, who is not here today, um, uses a, a metaphor again and again that's pretty pretty compelling. Um, so basically, using quick-release fertilizer is like using or is like feeding your children a high-sugar cereal, a high-carb diet. Um, they won't make it to lunch because they're still, you know, it's it's going to burn up right away and it's going to run off effectively right away. Whereas the slow-release fertilizer is like a high-protein diet which will feed the children slash grass over time. Um, so that's a metaphor that's helpful to think about when you're considering switching um, or getting rid of your fertilizer use altogether because your children don't need sugar. They need food. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, so Jess and I, um, along with Rob at the ORI, have been going to town to town um, to their conservation commissions, as Jesse mentioned, and trying to sort of push this agenda of um, accepting our Ocean River Institute um, set of guidelines, which include switching fertilizer or using none at all, and then also um, limiting slash banning the use of Roundup, which is a highly carcinogenic chemical. Um, so I think most people know what Roundup is, but just a, a Roundup of what it is, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, the chemical is produced by agricultural giant Monsanto. Um, it's been linked to non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which is a highly dangerous and deadly cancer. Um, and that was in a groundskeeper named Dwayne Johnson, who ended up being awarded, um, I think, a few hundred million dollars by Monsanto because he got cancer from working with the chemical. So it's scary because it's being put on our lawns um, and on a lot of municipal and like um, business, business parks and business land because it makes your grass look uniform. And also um, uniform crops. So isn't there a new study that recently showed that you know, Roundup has been used in oats and hops and mm-hmm. has been found in our beer and dairy, right? Yeah, exactly, Jess. Um, so we were just reading last week. There was a study that Jess has published. Um, I will get the source in a minute because I'm not remembering off the top of my head. But a study that was saying that high, high levels of Roundup have been found, um, or the chemical, the active ingredient in Roundup, which is glyphosate, um, has been found in ice cream, beer, and 21 General Mills cereals. So what you're feeding your kids quite literally could be carcinogenic, and that this is something that we are trying to alert local towns about um, and sort of get the word out because it's really scary, and we definitely don't want to be using it on our um, on our lawns, and we, uh, I mean, also don't want agriculturalists using it. So kind of the way we've been approaching getting the word out on both fertilizer and Roundup is kind of taking a relatively bottom-up approach. So what we've been doing is we've reached out now to 86 towns um, to ask their conservation commissioners to see if we can sit down and speak with them and kind of just have let our word be be out. So the, uh, while they've met with a bunch of 
previous interns and Rob have met with a bunch of different conservation commissions. Only only one so far has come into fruition, but it's been great. Arlington, the town of Arlington, has been um, accepted all of our regulations. Unfortunately, there is a bureaucratic process of uh, kind of convoluted, but basically the only way we could slip in these regulations is through wetland permitting. So um, basically it's only lawns that are within the wetland zone have to adhere to these regulations. However, what we're trying to get the word out on is what's good for lawns by wetlands is good for all of the lawns. So, But we haven't given up the fight. While we have Arlington ready to go, we've also been, we recently met with Littleton, who has been doing kind of similar environmental things. And um, what I've been doing is I reached out to the six towns on Martha's Vineyard, because that is where my dad lives. So I've been meeting, you know, they have their own set of regulations. However, it's still calling for three to six times the amount that we are suggesting, as well as we still want to band Roundup. So we have some upcoming meetings with Martha's Vineyard, which we are looking forward to, to hopefully reduce nitrogen pollution because they've really struggled with algal blooms and they've had a difficult time kind of protecting their great ponds. So we're looking forward to doing that. And it's funny, I just remember when I was a kid, I would you know, my grandma would pay me a dime per weed that I would spray with Roundup. Really? And now I'm like, I hope those chemicals still aren't bioaccumulating in me. Yeah. But, yeah, we're really hoping to uh, really hoping to get this nasty stuff banned and just generally protect our waters. Right. And, Jess, you said that Roundup is banned all on the vineyard, correct? So they don't use or uh, I thought someone told me that, but then a couple of the other towns have been like, not we're sure. interested in banning Roundup. Okay. So, so unclear not. on that. We'll find out soon. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we've been meeting with the conservation commissioners, but what have we been doing to get the word out to people, Morgan? Um, firstly, before I answer that question, which is a good <laughs> one, I wanted to say that um, the source for the study about um, 21 oat-based cereals having um, Roundup in them is from the Environmental Working Group. Um, but just to answer your question, first of all, that story about your grandmother paying you to spray Roundup is crazy, and I have a similar one. My family used to use it all the time, um, which makes sense. I mean, it's an effective uh, weed killer, but also it's an effective carcinogen, so it's not doesn't seem worth it. Um, so to answer your question, Jess, um, on the ground, the ORI team, um, which is us, has taken to a bunch of farmers markets in the area, um, namely Medford and Arlington so far, and we're looking to expand to other farmers markets because it's a really good way to get face-to-face with the local communities and tease out some of the issues with um, switching lawn care, what people think about it, why some people are really proud to have strong green lawns and how we can convince them that, you know, you can still have the attractive lawn you want or not, but you can still have the lawn you want without using a lot of harmful chemicals. Um, Yeah, so one thing we suggest is that um, we've learned that if you leave your grass clippings on on the grass, so if you cut your own grass or if you have someone cut your grass, um, just inform the, the cutter to leave the, the grass clippings right on top of the lawn, and that is equivalent to one pound of fertilizer in terms of the amount of nitrogen. Um, and what's really excellent from that is that you are truly keeping the nutrients right in the system. They don't need to move far away and then be purchased back. You know, you're, you're re-fertilizing with its, own, with its own substance, which feels more natural. Um, another thing we've learned is that if you um, let your grass grow a little bit longer, about three inches, um, then the roots will grow deeper, and that has a lot of effects, including um, ability to capture more stormwater because it's a more complex, deep root system. Um, also, better um, carbon sequestration capabilities because of rhizomal bacterial activity under the soil, which is a little too complicated to get into right now, um, and I don't fully understand, but a little bit. 
Um, yeah, so that so we've been talking to people at farmers markets, um, sort of asking them to sign our pledge, and we've also um, come up with a game to sort of model um, to sort of model what it is that a healthy grass system looks like and why people should stop lawn shaming each other. Um, having a lawn a lot of times is a bad rap because it sort of it seems like the antithesis of naturalness because it's this like uniform thing. Um, but what we at the ORI are arguing is that you don't have to get rid of your whole lawn or change your entire lifestyle, but make small modifications that over time, if everyone does it and it becomes part of the, the culture and ultimately part of the legislation, we'll be able to make some actual change for our ecosystem. Um, so what's the game we've been showing, showing kids at the farmer's market, Jess? Well, because one of the points that Morgan just touched upon is that if you treat your lawn right, you know, if you don't let it swim in this nasty polluting fertilizer, um, the roots, or if you, if you do use quick-release fertilizer and it's swimming with it, the roots don't go deep because there's so much, you know, everything they need is right at the surface. Um, it, the, the roots of the grass just kind of stay at the top. But if you stop using fertilizer or use just a little bit of slow release, it needs to, those roots kind of need to dig in deeper to look for the nutrients they're seeking out. And that, that kind of creates a sponge for, it creates a sponge-like quality of the grass in terms of absorbing water because it's rather than just being soil that immediately runs off, it, it kind of gathers that water and keeps it underground. So in order to demonstrate this to kids and also to get the attention of parents at farmer's markets, we have a little dish rack, um, and basically we have two sponges to represent a healthy lawn and then a giant rock to represent a patio or brick or could be an unhealthy lawn as well. And we had two little Lego houses placed below it. So place downhill of the two sponges or and downhill of the rock. Mm-hmm. And in order to simulate um, extreme climate events, we had kids take a turkey baster full of water and basically act as a quick rainstorm or a dramatic flood and, you know, squirt the turkey baster in front of the, the grass, fake quote-unquote grass, or the rock. And, you know, we've had kids predict whether which house is going to be wet, which house is going to be dry. And we had them demonstrate. And it was just all fun and games. Kids learned that Mm -hmm. a well-treated lawn can help protect your home from extreme climate events. And that patios and bricks do not do very much in terms of water-absorbing capacity. And that's great because we get the parents interested. And then it's been really Great to have them sign the pledge. So, yeah, it's been a fun time. We've met a lot of fun characters at the farmer's market so far. Um, And, yeah, you can also check out online. We have a video of one of the kids demonstrating this science experiment. Um, If you were interested in maybe recreating it yourself or seeing what we have been doing. And we're going to post that on the Ocean River Institute on Facebook. So you should definitely like us on Facebook. Um, Our website is oceanriver.org where you can sign up for our weekly e-alerts that we'll be sending out this weekend. Um, And yeah, we have a lot of different venues um, through which we're trying to put out our message. Um, Definitely grass is not the most glamorous environmental topic, which we kind of like because, you know, it's not, we're not talking about emissions or anything, but we are in a way, but grass is a sort of humble thing that everyone can relate to. And it's a way that we can get everyone involved from a grassroots level, which is a joke we've been (laughs) using slash an actual term that's accurate to our movement and also, you know, in many ways. Um, So, yeah, so I think we're done talking about 
or iNews. Um, yeah, so we have a bunch of meetings upcoming with different legislators and we're, or with different com- um, conservation commissions, and we're going to try to continue getting the word out um, about our grass pledge. Feel free, if you haven't, to sign it. Um, once again, it's on our website, and it, it'll be coming out in our e-alert again. Um, yeah, so a few things. We just wanted to do a little bit of a sort of environmental news spotlight um, because Jesse and I, as environmentalists, are constantly reading this stuff and sort of I know I like to listen to things that sort of update me on what's going on in the world of the environment, um, how important it is. For example, there's currently a push um, that a lot of Democratic grassroots organizations are having to try to get the, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, to have a debate only about climate change, which hasn't been accepted yet, but that's a piece of environmental news I just learned. Um, that's interesting. You know, it's trying to put environmentalism at the forefront of a political debate, which has never really been done before. Yeah. Um, so what else? What else is happening, Jess? I think that's great. Climate change is something that is obviously pressing, especially for us relatively youth. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, as, uh, again, someone who's interested in ecosystems, one interesting but kind of sad uh, piece of news that I read recently was that with climate change, it's climate change increases the um, geographical regions that are habitable for mosquitoes and other other bug vectors. Because they're hotter or more humid, or what, why do you think that is? Yeah, because, I mean, just the, the peak summer temperatures in Massachusetts here have been warmer and warmer than they were a couple decades ago. Yeah. So uh, scientists have recently predicted that climate change could increase the risk of malaria in colder areas. So... I saw some statistic recently that, you know, Zika as well, all of these mosquito-borne illnesses are slowly creeping up up the um, the coasts of America and also the Midwest, um, I guess, because it's becoming more a little more warmer, a little more humid, more tropical. So it's just something to look out for, unfortunately. And so hopefully malaria doesn't come to Massachusetts anytime soon, yeah. but, you know, the threat is there. So it's definitely a a NIMBY situation where it's it's a lot easier, unfortunately, to dismiss issues of, you know, um, epidemics basically when they're farther away from you, which is something that's common and also a problem because, you know, malaria is still incredibly harmful, deadly disease. Um, But the fact that it's it's coming closer and closer to the global north is, is also something scary and hopefully something that will motivate people to make a change in terms of how we treat our climate. Yeah. yeah, So, um, so another thing that we wanted to highlight just at the conclusion of our podcast um, is the concept of environmental justice, which is something we talk a lot about now as environmental studies students, but is a, a concept that emerged relatively recently in the 80s, um, was the first time it was ever mentioned. So I'll just read a definition. This is from the EPA. Um, so environmental justice is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Um, So EJ, environmental justice, is definitely a huge topic now, as Jesse and I are students of environmental science and policy, um, figuring out how all people can be brought into the conversation about how we treat our climate, because as we know, um, when climate change disasters and when climate issues hit, it's often the people, or it's always the people who are first hit and most affected are people um, of marginalized identities and in communities um, where, you know, where things are the hardest. Yeah, and that, Morgan, was something I definitely saw abroad is the communities that we visited most impacted by climate change are the 
you know, lower income, usually high minority communities uh, that are along the coast in Vietnam and Morocco, how there was issues with water rights. And yeah, it just was something that's very visible and all, all across the world. So yeah, it's something important that I think we should be paying attention to. And I hope that's also raised in the next um, democratic debate. So yeah, upcoming elections, absolutely. So yeah. yeah, that's our general podcast. Um, yeah, this today our theme was sort of everything but the kitchen sink. We've been um, wanting to do a podcast just introducing ourselves and talking about issues that are important to us. Um, and we will be back next week with a podcast, um, probably more more specific to ORI projects. Oh, in two weeks, because next week is the 4th of July. Um, so happy 4th, everyone. Happy holiday. Uh, yeah. Um, hopefully, while we're watching fireworks, we can also think about emissions in a happy and productive way. <laughs> And how we can sort of be festive, but also be conscious. You know, have your have your Fourth of July beverages um, in a local fruit. You know, some, right? Have, have a some strawberries. Keep them in a glass mason jar that you can use again. You know what to do, people. Yeah. Um, and in our weekly e alert, which hopefully you are all subscribing to, we will be putting out a few um, a few suggestions about how you can be sustainable um, starting right now. You know, not, you don't have to be an environmental lawyer legislator to, to know how to make a, a change with your lawn or with your actions in the kitchen or to make an impact. Yeah. Um, well, so that is all for this week's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Um, and stay green and keep the oceans blue. <laughs> and clean. <laughs> Thank you so much. Take care, everyone. Bye. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.